Hello, nerds. This is Eric Brickmont of Nerds on History. Just a reminder, if you are in the San Francisco Bay Area and you'd like to join us for our very special tour of the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, you can RSVP on our Facebook event page or via email. Once again, join us on February 3rd at 12 p.m. at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum in San Jose, California. See you then. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Check. Check one. Check two. Check two. Hey, Brian. Yes, Eric. Do you know that Charles Darwin, on his return voyage on the HMS Beagle, actually ate Galapagos turtle? What? Yeah. What was the side dish? I don't know. I wish someone was here to tell us. I believe it was deep fried finch. No, yeah, oh, Jesus. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, how are you, sir? You know, I'm doing quite well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing just as well. That's good. Yeah. Another week has gone by, another episode recorded, and another really interested listener has sent us some awesome feedback. Please share with Yeah, I want to give a quick shout out before we jump into today's topic, because I want to uh, just thank uh, Janelle for her really just fantastic email that she sent us the other day. She's been listening to both podcasts, both Nerds on History and Nerds on Film, for some time now. And she has kind of adopted us. She's kind of really taken to us in her in her own words. If I could get sincere for a moment, when you gave that email for me to read, uh, you, you knew this. I was having a very crappy day that day. Yeah, you were having kind of a rough one. Yeah, and um, it brought tears to my eyes. Like, it literally did. It was very heartwarming that a listener has that, much of a connection they feel that much of a connection to the work that we do yeah it was it was it was really nice so again you know janelle thank you so much for adopting us we in turn have adopted you uh as our as our new nerd mother and uh keep on listening keep giving us your feedback we'd love to hear from you again you can ship rice crispy treats and jerky to san jose california <laughs> <laughs> to the attention of the crew at nerds in history <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> or galapagos turtle if you happen to have any Jerky or otherwise, I, I think would be interesting to, to try out, huh? Yeah, we interested to see how it tastes on a skewer. Yeah, or maybe on toast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think you'd definitely have to have Galapagos on, on, on toast. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway uh, speaking of Galapagos turtles, really, you know, we're talking about Charles Darwin this week. Yeah, Charles yeah. Darwin and the theory of evolution and the origin of mankind. Some pretty deep topics, in fact, some, yeah. some real uh, head scratchers and, uh, and conversation starters, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that for me, I am not an anthropological expert um, or an expert on evolution. I took an anthropology class. Oh, good job. But um, I am not anywhere near the level I think I need to be to do this episode. I don't know. How about you, sir? I, I'm not an expert by any means. I definitely appreciate all things related to history, including the history of man and, and who we are and what we have become. But I just wish we had an expert. I wish we had someone certified who teaches, who, who perhaps I've known for a long... Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Who's this sitting right across from us? Hi. <laughs> it's our mysterious Finch voice from our cold open. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> uh, we're great. We're great. And I can tell you're just so excited to be here. I am. I'm super stoked. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen of the internet, this is Catherine Schaefers. Catherine, now you are a professor... At two colleges, correct? Yes, I am. Cool. So tell us which colleges you teach at. So I teach at a Foothill College in Los Altos Hills in California, here. And I also teach at Ohlone College in Fremont. And I teach all different types of subjects in anthropology, including physical anthropology, which is about evolution, genes, and DNA, as well as cultural anthropology classes, too. And if I'm not mistaken, you and I have known each other for quite some time now. Yes, yeah, so I've <laughs> known Eric for a while. Uh, we used to be co-workers at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. So we've uh, worked on a lot of tours together and projects. And so um, I think that was back in 2006 is when I came on there. Yeah, I think we've known each other for about six years now. Yeah, and then yeah. Eric's uh, come in and been a guest speaker for my classes, too. Really? You never yeah. told me that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've gone and uh, talked a little bit about ancient Egypt, as you would imagine, and uh, in your religion. Yeah, uh, the magic science and religion Magic course. science and religion, correct. Mm -hmm. And I've gone and talked a little bit about religious specialists in Egypt and things of that nature. But mm -hmm. it's always been a lot of fun. And now the, the tables have turned slightly. Now you're coming yes. on my show. <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm very excited to be a guest. Well, we are very excited to have you. And what better person to come and talk about today's subject than yourself? Because I really believe that you are truly very insightful on in everything that we're, we're going to be talking about today. And 
our listeners are really in for a treat. So, oh, so let's, thank you. let's get into it, shall we? I was curious where you got your degrees from. Sure. Um, so my background uh, comes from a, a variety of different places. I went to UC Santa Barbara for my undergraduate. Started off at Foothill College, where I currently teach. So that's been a it's been an awesome thing yeah. to go back to where I started. Um, and then in uh, UC Santa Barbara, I did my undergraduate in physical anthropology, which is about genes, genetics, DNA, and evolution. And then I went on to get my graduate degree, my master's in Holland. So I went to the University of Leiden, and that's where I studied classical archaeology, specializing in ancient Gnosticism and mystery cults of the Greco-Egyptian and Roman worlds. That is fascinating. Is Quite a fun. pedigree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she's qualified. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you passed the test. All right. Yeah, you get a gold star. Good to know. Thank you. Good. Well, maybe we should ask you, where do we begin with this? Where do we begin? Yeah. Well, at the beginning, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been always questions when I teach physical anthropology about um, when did the human race start? Um, I know that the last podcast was on race, and we go back to the very beginning. Um, race is cultural construct, but when we go in biology, we really only have one human race. Right. So we go back to the very beginnings and our earliest fossil record um, places that said about 185 to 195,000 years ago, with genetic evidence coming back to about 187,000 years ago. And that's anatomically modern humans, Anatomically correct? modern humans, right. yes. The first ones. Yeah, the first um, fossils of anatomically modern humans that we found were in Ethiopia. And so that was um, at a place uh, called Como Ibish. And so that's a place where uh, we found some fragments of a skull and a few other bones. And so it's the earliest uh, fossil evidence. And then if you trace our human genome back, we have a date about 187,000 years ago. So that's kind of where we start. Uh, before then, we had Homo neanderthalensis, which are the Neanderthals. And then we also have Homo erectus and a whole other array of other pre-modern humans and uh, early hominids. That's interesting because I was always under the impression that, not always under the impression, but I was under the impression that Neanderthals were... Um, a species of human that just no longer existed. Yeah, so that's been in the news recently. You might have read about it. Uh, Neanderthals and humans, uh, now we find out that we do share genes. If you take a look at pretty much anybody in the world uh, today, you have between maybe 1% to 4% Neanderthal DNA in you right now. The only people in the world that do not have this are people that have been native to Africa uh, past 80,000 years ago when the interbreeding between humans and Neanderthals took place. So that suggests a migration from... Um, well, it yeah. So uh, amongst the many things that we'll talk about today, yeah, humans did uh, go out of Africa tens of thousands uh, of years ago. And so uh, when they did eventually get out of Africa, there was one point somewhere in the Middle East, uh, we've pinpointed this with genetic evidence, that we actually interbred with Neanderthals. So Interesting. So we couldn't rate. have been that different then if we were able to do No. That. So are we the same species? Are we not? Some people place Neanderthals as a uh, subspecies of Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis, Homo sapiens being our genus and species name as humans, and some place them as a different species altogether. Yeah. Just to, for the, the agnostic person yeah, who's coming into this podcast, I'd like to recap for a couple seconds of the, some of the vocab you're using. So Neanderthals. No, it's, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> So Neanderthals were a species of living creature who is now debatable whether they were human or not. They looked very phenotypically similar to humans, except mm -hmm. they had larger foreheads, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so if you saw a Neanderthal walking down the street, you notice a few things that were a little off. Uh, first of all, Neanderthal's head is shaped more like a football, where ours is more like a basketball or a soccer ball. So the end of their skull has um, a protrusion at the back called an occipital bun. So there's some more vocab. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, heavy brow ridges, of course. And then uh, a particular trait of Neanderthals, which is what they share with every other hominid that came before humans, is that they didn't have a chin. Hmm. So if you look at people today, um, pretty much every human on this planet has a chin, has a bony projection at the end of their jaw. Hmm. But Neanderthals, no, they didn't. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they were also shorter in stature. Yeah. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more bulky in their yeah. in their build, and their nostrils tend to be a bit more wide and open, and this is all mm -hmm. to deal with the, the cold weather that they had they adapted had big, to. They big, big noses. They were living in uh, places that were pretty cold. Uh, they were mostly found... Um, in Europe. That's where they live. So they had a stockier body. They had uh, bigger features in general. 
um, they had huge cheek bones, and it was to support the the big muscles that were in their jaws. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so most Neanderthal males, we know this because when we dig up their skeletons, they lived to only about 30 years old. That was their lifespan. And when we find their bones, there are oftentimes lots of stress fractures in them. Mm. And so they had a very hard, harsh life. Uh, it was very short. So yeah, they were stocky. They were they were rough. They were just not what you would see normally um, in the human population. But we still have individuals that are kind of shaped like that today. Um, I can think of my brother as one of the ones that kind of look like that. um. It's interesting because the way you describe it, it's almost like you would, it's something you would see out of Star Trek, you know, like this other humanoid looking species. And there's also a misconception that Neanderthals were less intelligent than Homo sapiens. Big misconception. Yeah, so Neanderthals have a bigger brain case than us. They have a bigger brain capacity um, compared to the rest of their body than humans do. Um, as far as Neanderthal intelligence, well, we can't really talk to a Neanderthal, so we don't know. But there are a few clues that present us with um, some level of how they thought. Such uh, as ceremonial burials. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So one of them is that they did bury their dead. Um, they buried them in a flex position, meaning that they put their legs and arms um, in a fetal position. And then they would cover their bodies with red ochre, which is this fine, powdery, uh, reddish uh, substance that they would sprinkle over the body. So they did bury them. They had a ritual surrounding that. And that's predating the same practice or similar practices by modern humans by several thousand years, in fact. Yeah. So Neanderthals came on the scene about maybe 450,000 years ago. While humans um, pushes back uh, our earliest fossil evidence, um, 195,000 years. So yeah, they predate us by a while. Hundreds of thousands of years. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very. This is all very interesting. And so you're talking about really, I don't want to say our precursor because there is, because you say there's evidence yeah, to suggest they were that we cohabited. Yeah, yeah, contemporaries. Mm-hmm. They, we kind of evolved out of a, of a similar species that was still there. Yeah, so yeah. we think that we probably did evolve from something that was pre-human. Uh, Neanderthals may or may not have evolved from them, but what we're really thinking is that populations of something called Homo erectus were the main ones that would eventually become humans. We're talking about the first bipedal primates, essentially, or no? Um, well, not the first bipedal. Well, well, yeah, so there's a lot of okay here to explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if we go back six to seven million years ago, okay. that's when we had the first truly bipedal primates. Uh, we call these hominins or hominids. Some people call them hominids. Some people call them hominins. N and a D, that's the only difference there. (laughs) And so it's uh, six to seven million years ago, we have um, a few specimens, like uh, there's a specimen from Chad. Um, His whole name is Sahelanthropus chadensis. And he comes from the Sahel Desert in Chad, in yeah. Africa. I, actually, I remember we talked about Sahel. Uh, I can't even say it. <laughs> but I remember Chadensis. I remember thinking, because I think we just yeah. called him Chad. Yeah, just call him Chad. Because <laughs> um, that's like the first time you see the species named for the, like, the location. Yeah. Right? Other than like, I think Australopithecus. Was there also um, some? Well, that's Southern Ape, I yeah, believe. Yeah, Southern the Ape derivative. of Africa. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's um, Australopithecus africanus. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Australopithecus afarensis from the Afar Desert in Ethiopia. That's Lucy. Right. The famous Lucy, 1978 is when she was found, and right. um, she was found over 40% of her skeleton intact, and she comes from about three point uh, something million years ago. Right. That was from the Leakey family, right? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. It was well, Le- Don Johansson is the one that found her. Oh, that's right. Sorry, the Leakeys yeah. had done work predating... They, well, they um, work mainly in Olduvai Gorge, right. and so their whole family is still involved with that, and uh, there's many famous finds, many, many famous finds from yeah, Homo erectus to the Australopithecus. It was a husband and wife team, and then their Mm -hmm. son Mm -hmm. ended up marrying an anthropologist as well, and then the two of them... Yeah. Ended up, you know, going further in the field uh, alongside their parents, which yeah. is... And then the granddaughter now tours and speaks on uh, human evolution and paleoanthropology, too. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. I hope my oh. kids do that. <laughs> yeah. I, want, I cool. want a lineage like a, that. A that dynasty, is as it were. Yeah. Archaeological dynasty. It was Don Johansson who originally discovered the most complete, to that point, remains of an of Australopithecus. Uh, yes, yes, that's true. And uh, the Australopithecines as a group, uh, the Australopithecines, that's the genus name. So, like, uh, our genus name is Homo. We have Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthalensis. Oh, I see. Um, so, the Australopithecines probably had 10 or 11 or maybe more, maybe less 
uh, species associated with that. Uh, Lucy comes from the um, Afarensis uh, genus, or sorry, species name, but there is also Australopithecus um, africanus, Australopithecus uh, boisei, which now actually has a different genus name because paleoanthropology is always changing. <laughs> right. But yeah, so they We could actually thank the, the Rolling Stones, I believe, for <laughs> naming Lucy as that's what uh, was being played at the time, if I remember correctly from what I had read. No? Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah. Was it the Rolling Stones? Oh, no, it was the Beatles. Oh, that's the Beatles. I'm sorry. My history of, of 20th century rock stars is not as good, apparently, <laughs> as, uh, as my Egyptian knowledge. But uh, I remember watching a special on Lucy. I think it was on the Discovery Channel. And I remember they described her as part human, part ape. And that's probably not the right description for her because... You could say that still. Yeah, you could? Yeah, okay. sure. So uh, when, we, when you hear the word ape dropped... Uh, what ape really means is that uh, that's a classification for chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, gibbons, samangs, and orangutans. I think I got them all okay. <laughs> that are living today. So those are apes, um, and we are humans. We used to be subsumed under the category of apes, too. But then recently, um, we've kind of been placed in a new category, humans. <laughs> so... When we say Lucy is part ape, a lot of her features um, mirror more of a um, a smaller brain case. Um, her face in general, that means her nose and her mouth and her chin, um, are a lot farther out from her face than a human's would be. So more in line with that, with like mm-hmm. a gorilla, yeah, basically. And uh, her canids were, were larger. They were or... a little, little bit larger, but they, I mean, if you look at Lucy's teeth, they look very similar to our own teeth. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, but her arms were a lot longer compared to the rest of her body. So Lucy and her kind uh, did look a lot like part ape, part human. But when you saw Lucy standing up on two feet, she was only about three foot something. Wow. She was a full adult. So she was tiny compared to humans and compared to Homo erectus that came later. So she was really small. Yeah, yeah, but her pelvic structure, the way her pelvis was, she walked upright, was um, just like ours almost. So we can only surmise, of course, the kind of behavior that Lucy would exhibit. But we believe, just based off of the anatomical evidence, that while they were still spending time in trees, it was considerably less. And they were spending more and more time on the ground, and they were Mm -hmm. taking advantage of their their bipedal structure, right? Yes. And what what opportunities it gave them. Yeah, so Lucy could walk uh, like us, but she wouldn't really be able to fully stride like we do. You wouldn't see um, an Australopithecine like Lucy... Uh, sprinting across the desert. You'd see her maybe ambling a little bit, a shuffling gait. So that's what she would have had. It wasn't really until um, you get about maybe a million years later into Homo erectus that we see that full running stride that we as modern humans have. Which is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be able to, to run from one place to another, to outrun you know predators, to be able to, to move more comfortably, more freely, gives you a little bit more range, a little bit more opportunity to survive. Yeah. You know, if your environment starts to change, you have more of an opportunity to, to adapt and move on. And that's really what we're talking about in evolution, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about adaptation. And yeah. we're talking about getting better and, and improving kind of what has already been. Yeah, so evolution is not directional. Uh, it's not about getting better over time. It's just adapting to change. Yeah. So as um, as species go on in time and change and mutate, um, it's not because they're you know getting better and better. It's more that they're changing to their environment. Right. We see this um, currently with uh, the flu virus, which a lot of people have around this time of the year. Um, every year there's a flu vaccine that's created uh, to fight the current flu virus. And then when people get it, they get the virus, the vaccine, and then it's taken care of. But those strains, um, those particular flu viruses that are mutated slightly differently from everything else survive. And then they reproduce and then they become uh, the dominant flu for next year. And so it's a constant battle today of, of geneticists to try and fight the flu virus as it mutates and evolves every year. So we see evolution in action just with that alone. Yeah. Hmm. wonder if we'll ever get to a point where, uh, probably not because there's too many probabilities of it, of variation but it'd be interesting to see if we ever get to a point where we becoming resistant to the flu of all kinds of all strains maybe i mean i've read those science fiction novels too (laughs) right exactly yeah so many proposed theories on what will be eventually in thousands of years millions of years from now well see now we're talking about what i think we really we're, we're trying to get get to tonight there's all this fascinating knowledge about different species of life forms pre-human mm-hmm. um but you're talking about adapting to its environment and I guess as long as you survive long enough to have sex, mm-hmm. basically, and reproduce, then 
Yeah. You're proving the theory behind. Yeah. So the the example that I just gave about the flu, I mean, that is so rapid. That changes. Uh, we can see that changing uh, right now. But evolution, if you're talking about uh, most species, is such a long process. Yeah. So long. And so if you take a look at how long humans have been around archaeologically, just by archaeology, and we're finding, you know, the remains up to under 95,000 years ago in Ethiopia, that is not that long in evolution. Not that long at all. It's kind of a blink of the eye. Geologically, oh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not even a millisecond. Yeah, so my students have asked me, if we went, if we had a time machine and could go back at that point, would we be able to breed with those people? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we could we, more, more than likely, let's say nothing's impossible, but I would say yes. Uh, they're anatomically modern humans at that point. Our genetic evidence says that we go back to around that time period, too. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah, but um, one thing I think is important to talk about is uh, what a theory is and the theory of evolution. You know, when, uh, and I do this too, and when I'm just talking with my friends, we'll throw around the word theory like it means nothing. <laughs> like it's, uh, that's your opinion or that's your, um, that's your way of seeing things. Uh, theory in science is just, uh, it's the culmination of a long process called the scientific method. So at first you have an observation of something in nature, and then you have an, a hypothesis, which is an educated guess about how something works. And then over the course of many, many tests on that hypothesis, not just by yourself, but other people too coming in to independently verify your stuff, uh, eventually you get to a theory which explains something. So we have the theory of gravity, uh, which is created to explain you know, that, that force that we're familiar with, um, but it is a theory. Yeah. It's so not a law yet. It is Well, there is a law of gravity, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's That's started, more the way that gravity interacts yeah. with, the, with the physical world yeah, as opposed so, to defining what gravity is. Oh, perfect. Good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so a theory explains something. A law just states that it is. Yeah. That, that's all. And so a theory it's a postulate, is a, basically. A law is yeah. a postulate. Yes. It, it, to be mathematical. Yeah. Yeah. But a theory is, you can't prove it 100%, but there's lots of evidence that supports mm -hmm. this because the theory, because it could change. Yeah. So a theory explains how something works based on lots and lots of evidence and data that's been repeated over and over and over again. Now, of course, evolution, the theory of evolution might be overturned someday. It might evolve into something else itself. Um, but right now, we have it as a model and we use Use it every day in genetics we have to yeah. use it um, it's predicted lots of things especially with disease um, and how to treat that so uh, we have evolution today and it's a it's a working theory we work with it all the time and it explains but that's not to mean it can't change a theory always has to be have the ability to be proven false and so it could one day so you know what we're really talking about is adaptation on a, on a large scale affecting who we are, how we are, how we've developed, and where we are going, too, yeah. really. Because humans didn't just, if you accept the out-of-Africa theory, we didn't just stay in Africa. No, we moved and we now cover the entire globe. How did that happen? Yeah, well, there's there's two really big theories on uh, how we became modern humans. Uh, the first one you just mentioned is called the out-of-Africa theory. And it says that um, in some point in our evolution, we modern humans who originated in Africa uh, left and then colonized um, parts of Europe and Asia and the Middle East. And then uh, we replaced the pre-modern human populations that were already there, like Homo erectus, like Neanderthals and some other species too. Uh, and then that's how we kind of spread out everywhere. But then there's another theory that goes that we did not originate in Africa, but that Homo erectus moved out of Africa. And then eventually they settled in Europe. They settled in China. They settled in Indonesia. They settled in the Middle East. And then all those populations um, sort of arose to be humans at the same time. What that means is that somehow there was some sort of connection between all those places and that all of these uh, Homo erectus individuals and in all these disparate places uh, maybe had some sort of trade going on because if they're all arose to be humans together, then there had to be some sort of connection. Is it possible that as the different Homo erectus populations diverged and moved out, it was more so another group of perhaps more anatomically modern humans? And then just like we have with Neanderthals, how we have a shared heritage, we believe how we have interbreeding going on. Isn't it also possible that yeah. more anatomically modern humans simply interbred and yeah. as a result it's impossible to really yeah so the uh, of course um that that's um probably happened too uh the only thing about that is that we can't 
prove that because we yeah. don't have DNA from anything else besides Neanderthals right now. Right. We had we found Neanderthal bones, not fossils, but bones. And so that's how we were able to get DNA from Neanderthals, crack their code, and then compare it to humans. Well, in Asia, though, Interesting. Human uh, Homo erectus was around around the same time as Neanderthals and, yes. and modern humans, mm-hmm. right? So do we have any bone samples from there that we could pull DNA from? Oh, um, the problem is when you find bone, a lot of times it's not in, a, in good enough shape to get a DNA sample from. So yeah. we haven't been able to do it yet. Um, but when we're talking about migrations of pre-modern populations, there are some good stories there. Uh, we know that Homo erectus uh, migrated out of Africa um, and then went pretty much across Asia um, all the way to China. Uh, didn't go into Australia and didn't go into the New World, though. Only Homo sapiens uh, went into those places. But we found remains on the islands of Indonesia. Uh, Homo erectus went down there. But recently what's come to light is that there might have been a migration pre-Homo erectus going out of Africa. Hmm. And that goes all the way back to maybe something that was an Australopithecine. Because we found some remains in Georgia in a place called Demonisi where the skulls and the bones of the individuals found there are a lot more primitive than anything we've seen of uh, Homo erectus. Mm. And they also go further back in time than the first Homo erectus that we've ever found outside of Africa. Wow. And then even more interesting is that we've recently found remains of a hobbit-like creature on the island of Flores in Indonesia. The name of this is Homo floresiensis, and um, this individual made the news a few years ago, I think back in 2009. I remember, I remember, I remember hearing about this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so this human is called the Hobbit Human, came out about the same time as Lord of the Rings, so got the name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this individual was about the size of a three-year-old child, full-grown. Now, there's been a lot of debate mm-hmm. as to whether or not this was a whole subspecies of human or if this yeah. was, in fact, the remains of a child found with some sort of demorphic yeah. well, uh, mutation uh, or, or disease. Yeah. So um, there was uh, somebody who was very adamant about that. Uh, a scientist from Indonesia argued that point. Um, but he actually argued that it was a human that had microcephaly. Okay. Uh, it was a fully grown adult, but they've also found another skull, too. Uh, microcephaly is when you have um, a dwarfism in the skull that causes the rest of the body to also remain small. So you have a full-grown individual that's just smaller. Um, the remains of Homo floresiensis, though, um, there's nothing that is deformed or odd about the skeleton. So it looks like a perfectly preserved, as much as we can tell, normal-looking hominid species. But it's not quite human. The The brain case is a lot smaller than a human's, but all the teeth are normal, and uh, it, it does look to be something that is close to us, but is not quite a Homo erectus, not quite a Neanderthal, not a Homo sapien, but something that might have gotten there earlier than even Homo erectus individuals. Hmm. So there hmm. might be a hidden migration out of Africa before Homo erectus that we just don't know about. So that doesn't necessarily refute the theory that life came out of Africa. It just... It just Back, dates it back a little bit further. It didn't yeah. mean, mean that human beings didn't go. Yeah, so we know that Homo erectus migrated out of Africa. Uh, the big question is if humans evolved from the populations of Homo erectus that came out of Africa, or did humans arise in Africa and then go out and then populate the rest of the world? I guess the only way that we would really be able to see this is if we found some viable DNA from Homo erectus. Mm, that's not going to happen, probably. Yeah. Well, that also breaks <laughs> apart the... Uh, the whole theory behind, forgive me for making a biblical term, but the uh, the whole theory of using mDNA to find yeah. an archaeological Eve, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, so mDNA is mitochondrial DNA, and right. that's passed down through the mother. And uh, we've been able to trace uh, the last common ancestor for all humans, and that's how we get that date of about 187,000 years ago for the start of humanity. And that's also how we can tell when humans and Neanderthals interbred. Because of tracing that DNA. That's why we get this date of about 80,000 years ago for this Mm. interbreeding to occur. Mm. The only people right now that do not have Neanderthal genes are Native African populations. People that have not gone out of Africa for the last 80,000 years are the only ones that do not have Neanderthal DNA. So even folks in Asia and Southeast Asia also have Neanderthal markers. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, in that amount of time... um, people migrate, they just do, and yeah. populations, there's gene flow everywhere. Sure. And so by that time, by today, everybody has it. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was true 200 years ago. Mm, that's a good question. Because so much of our modern genome has become 
melded together due to the fact that we can travel just about anywhere in the world now. Maybe we should have a time machine that just, if we had ever had a time machine that just went back 200 years even, well, that'd it, be neat. I think if you uh, go to the, the Americas, let's say 200 years ago, people still would have had Neanderthal genes. Yeah. The migration into the Americas, earliest points now, we're thinking maybe 13,000 years ago, is, right. it's kind of a good date, might be before, but... Pre-Clovis. Yeah. yeah that's, pre- a whole nother, yeah. that's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by that time, they, the interbreeding already took place. Um, people already had Neanderthal genes in ah, the New World. I see. Fascinating. Well, we just don't know. And you know what? That's okay. I think we can all agree, though, that we did start in Africa. I think that generally speaking now, that's that's mm. agreed upon, right? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. where we evolved. Yes. Yeah. And that there are tribes in Africa today whose genetic material is essentially... The oldest in the world. Oldest in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. The Sand Tribe, I believe, is one of the, the most sand. oftentimes referenced examples of that. Yeah. So, yeah, the San Bushmen or the Zutwazi, that's, uh, that's their name. Yeah. They're a big, big study group in uh, cultural anthropology because they're one of the most traditional people that we found and that their culture has been intact for the, the longest time that we know. And uh, it's still intact today. They're, uh, Good they're, for them. Yeah. Yeah, they're the most untouched by by modern civilizations. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 of course, they they have contact now because yeah. mainly because of anthropologists. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, ironically, the, the governments that are now trying to figure out where they're going to live. There's a big land battle and everything going oh, on right wow. now. Yeah, yeah, but that's a cultural anthropology. Yeah, <laughs> and you're more in the archaeological field. It sounds like. Yeah. So yeah, mainly archaeology, but um, if you're an anthropologist, you dabble in all these different subdisciplines because it's a holistic thing. We have to talk and know about all of the subdisciplines right. of anthro. There is a theory out there that I hear that, that in the anthropological world, they're sort of having some difficulty with, which is mm-hmm. punctuated equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah. So what is first off? What <laughs> what is it? <laughs> So that's the idea that evolution uh, works in spurts. So you have um, maybe some sort of ge- geological event or environmental event factor that happens, which causes organisms to um, adapt very quickly to something. So let's say that there's um, a big flood that overtakes um, this whole coastal area, and uh, the only survivors are those organisms that have some sort of mutation already that can adapt, or a bunch of mutations. Those organisms then are the survivors, they breed, they take over, and um, then evolution has occurred right there, and then most of the populations have those uh, formerly very recessive mutations. Um, so let's say that there's a whole bunch of things that happen, like a flood, an earthquake, and a meteor, I don't know. So all Super these volcano, yeah, something like so that. Yeah, so all these kinds of things. And it makes organisms evolve right away. And then there follows um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of stasis. Uh, so there's not, not a lot of change, not a lot of mutating going on. And you get another cataclysmic event or something else something else that makes them all of a sudden mutate. Get propelled fo- yeah, forward. Yeah. And adapt, let's say. So that's punctuated equilibrium. Darwin's theory of evolution said that um, there's this gradual change in organisms. Uh, that's the gradual theory of ad- evolution, gradualism. That evolution or that uh, mutations and adaptations, they accumulate um, at a constant rate over time. So those are the two big ones in evolution, the two big theories. And are there any, I'm sorry, are there any uh, theories that suggest that, that it works both ways, that it can be gradual and then it can temporarily speed up and then... Yeah, I was just going to say that. Could, could it be possibly a mixture of, of both of these things going? Perhaps not something consistent, right? Not not something that's at a set pace, but that there's always ongoing evolution, but there's times when it really gets pushed forward. Yeah, I'd say that's a possibility. I haven't thought about that yet, so I don't have a good answer for you right now. That's okay. You've <laughs> that's had an answer to everything else that we've <laughs> asked you today. It. No, that's fine. But that's it's good to know that that's still a thought. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Eric? I'm sorry. I, I, was, I was mirroring exactly what you said. Oh. I was going to say exactly what you said. Oh, yeah. perfect. That's our second connection we were talking about. Our on synchronicity. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's interesting to see all these different takes on it. It's almost like there's not one answer no. to evolution. Um, and like you said, because it's not linear. No. If I say nonlinear, I immediately think of like video, but that's because yeah. <laughs> I'm a that's my background. But uh, it is. It, it's all over. The, it's like more like a roadmap, mm-hmm. really. You know. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a big branching tree that goes to all these different places, and um, it's not about organisms progressing or getting better. Uh, if you've, you go back two hundred years or so when the theory of evolution first came out. Um, it was more or less used to prove that um, the British Empire and those you know in it and the theorists in it were at the top. They were at the pinnacle of evolution. Mm. And all their cultures that they were meeting weren't quite there yet. 
And that's so, more social Darwinism. That, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's been totally unfounded at this point. Yeah, so evolution we understand today is not directional. It is not linear. It just is, um, it's difference, it's uh, mutations, and it's uh, adaptations to whatever's going on at the time. Well, that's good, because basically, I think that the common conception of evolution is the linear model that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that it is the constant Im- improvement. And that leads to a lot of other misconceptions, like yeah. the belief that, I think you were just talking about, uh, when we were prepping for the show, the whole misconception that we evolved from chimpanzees. Yeah, so we don't, we did not evolve from chimpanzees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to make that clear to everybody. <laughs> right. I, um, keep, I keep thinking of the Scopes Monkey Trial yeah. from the 1920s, and those signs, are you a man or a monkey? Yeah, you know? so there's there's a whole bunch of, oh man, that's layered right there. Yeah, um, <laughs> sorry, 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 <laughs> that just, that's the way my brain works, my apologies. No, it's okay. Um uh, so first of all, chimpanzees, monkeys, and humans are all separate things. Uh, we're all primates, but we're all different branches of the primate family tree. Right. Um, about, I'd say maybe 7 million years ago, there was a common ancestor to chimpanzees and humans. And from that common ancestor, um, there was a group that evolved to be chimps. There was a group that evolved to be humans. And then later on, there evolved to be gorillas and other primates like that, too. So um, when evolution works in that way, um, you'll have one population, and then let's say that um, some some of that population gets stranded because of, of something in somewhere else. And um, that population now has different forces playing on it. And so that, that new population is evolving in a different way than the original population. And over lots and lots of time, those populations can no longer interbreed if they meet each other again. And that's what you can get speciation, two different species. We do this with dogs almost. We don't make different species out of dogs. But we get we, pretty close. Yeah, we, yeah. you know, one day we might just not be able to mate a chihuahua with a um, Great Dane. It just might not happen. <laughs> Interesting. And by mate, you mean that their offspring can reproduce. Yeah. So yeah. we do artificial selection on dogs. Um, yeah. And uh, we, we produce so many different adaptations for them. Um, but if we you know, take some of these dog breeds and we isolate them and we never let them breed for thousands of years, then maybe if we try and reintroduce them, then they might have evolved different things and right. and they might not be able to interbreed again. Yeah, so then, just to clarify then, so the theory really is that it goes back to common ancestry, yes. like you were saying. Mm-hmm. So whatever this species of creature was yes. broke off into three different areas and then chimpanzees developed from one. Yeah. And this is the so-called missing link. Um, right, the link I between would, I would humans and apes. Uh, yeah, in Darwin's day, there was this missing link between <laughs> humans and the apes. But uh, today, there's probably there's lots and lots of missing links, missing steps. For all the fossils that we found, yeah. there are there's so much that we didn't find. Yeah, you know, if you think about the possibility of finding a fossil in the Earth when the archaeologist was digging for it, it was preserving the perfect conditions. Um, well, so yeah, I mean, you really have to have the right environment. It's very circumstantial, and it changes because your environment is constantly changing, you know? We're talking about the course of millions of years of geology happening, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the the likelihood and odds of being able to find these fossils instantly, you know, drops dramatically just just based on their age. So where you have certain areas like you have in Africa where we found a lot of these fossils, you have ideal conditions for finding them, but you're not going to find that everywhere in the world. Yeah, so if you think about people today, if you die, morbid thought, but if you die, (laughs) you probably won't become a fossil. You'll probably be buried in conditions that do not allow your bones to be fossilized. Right. It's only in areas where you have a process called mineralization that this happens. And that's when you're near some sort of water source that can go into your bones. And after um, a gradual amount of time, the bone, all the bone gets replaced with these minerals. And that's how you get a fossil. It's pretty much just rock. It's mineral rock. That's all it right. is. It happens to be the same shape as what you had left. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So pretty much... A couple of million years from now, the archaeologists who are trying to find humans are going to be totally screwed because because <laughs> we, we won't have anything left to go off of. I wouldn't say they that. There's lots probably, of populations yeah. in the world that that are not industrialized who live on the banks of rivers and what have you, and yeah. it, it's possible. I think they'll they'll find. I was a few making of us. a joke, but okay, cool. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so there is some hope for our story to continue on. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Maybe one day we'll find a Homo Bryansis out yeah. there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so I don't we, think I'm into the anthrothal because I have a larger forehead. So, oh. <laughs> so, uh, you're like, see, it lives. Oh, it no. lives among us. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, 
No, I think that um, if you were to see a Neanderthal walking around today, he or she would stick out quite a bit in a crowd. It's not just the brow ridges. It's the cheekbones. It's the no chin. It's yeah. the big face. It's a big face compared to the rest of its body. It would have a huge So really face. like only Halloween would be the one night where you're like, that's a rocking costume. <laughs> <laughs> where'd, you, <laughs> where'd you get to your makeup from? Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Well, really, you think about our species, we've given it a pretty good chance now because we have stretched out and moved to just about every corner of the globe. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of folks that suggest that if we are going to continue to evolve, literally evolve, we have to move beyond just our planet. We have to get out there and we have to colonize other worlds. And there's been a lot of science fiction written on this subject. You know, what's going to happen 100,000 years from now Mm -hmm. if we do leave Earth? Would we ever be able to kind of get back in contact with each other and would we would we yeah. even recognize each other? Would we be able to reproduce with one another if we hadn't diverged for that long? Yeah. There was there's one um, book, I never read it, but I remember hearing it called Blue Mars. It's about science fiction that we we terraform Mars and migrated there and there's basically now Mars is at war with Earth because the humans there have now developed totally different than, yeah. not totally different, but they've developed to become their own culture. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's not history. That's, that's science fiction. But yeah. one does nurture the other, you know? Remember, this is nerds on yeah. history. <laughs> <laughs> no, I read those books too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. problem with today's population though is that we're so genetically similar because at some point in our past, we went through a bottleneck there might have been only a few hundred individuals left on this planet, and from then is where we get all our genes today. So if you compare it to chimpanzees, if you compare it to pretty much any other species besides cheetahs, <laughs> we have the, the least amount of genetic diversity. That means if there is a disease that hits a population in China, let's say, the rest of the world it's better look out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we are so similar that that could very easily pass to anybody. Which means we should build spaceships <laughs> and we should go to other planets so that our species has the best chance of survival. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> or I immediately think of isolationism. You know, almost a, a science fiction story where the countries of the world barricade themselves off for their own good. And don't interact with other countries. But that actually almost makes it worse. Yeah. Now that, yeah. that uh, if you have a barrier like that, then you will accumulate mutations and different types of things that go on with one population that make it harder to reproduce with the population outside that barricade, let's yeah. say. Yeah. And so you will have distinct groups after a while. If you do that for thousands of years, let's thousands say. Thousands of years, yes. <laughs> yeah. So many, yeah. many, many generations. But there's also, isn't there the theory too that if we were, it was the same situation again, where if yeah. we had... Uh, only a small group of humans left mm-hmm. within a couple 10,000 years, I think, tens of thousands of years, yeah. you would have enough variation again to see close to what we have if now. If you see, if you see, um, yeah, so you'd have to only depend on mutation then. That would be your only source of variation. Mutation um, in the body because that's all the genes you have to start with. So yeah. the only difference is when you have a mutated gene somewhere. That's it. Interesting. Okay. So wh- why don't we take a second though to talk about Darwin because we've talked a lot about the nature of humanity, you know? I mean, anthropology is, of course, the story of man, right? But Darwin wasn't even looking at that. He was going to study birds. He was just trying to get away from being a doctor. <laughs> right. Really, he was escaping his life Bird and human. wanted to do he something wanted, else. He, yeah, he was in the Episcopal uh, yeah. Seminary, actually. Yeah, he was going to do that. And uh, then the HMS Beagle came calling and uh, adventure, and so he set off and took his opportunity but darwin from a very young age he was interested in life like he would have already uh pins of beetles and he would just you know see all the diversity that was around him and he already had that interest so going on this voyage the hms beagle was the ship that he traveled the world on he didn't captain it but he was on it and so when it went to all these different places, uh, it was kind of in heaven. <laughs> and so he was able to collect his finches. He collected his turtles. He collected his beetles. He collected fossils. He had dinosaurs. He had giant ground sloths. He had yeah, so he had many different extinct things. extinct megafauna and all sorts yeah. of cool stuff. Yeah. And then after collecting all these, and especially when it went to the Galapagos Islands, that's when he started piecing everything together and thinking about these things. And... Um, but when Darwin came back, he didn't publish his theories immediately. Um, the The atmosphere at the time, not so accepting of that. Um, there was a belief in the fixity of species and that the species never changed. And uh, there wasn't really this idea of immense amounts of time. Darwin went to the Andes and he went yeah. to the very tops and he saw that there were shells, sea life on the top of the Andes. How could they get there? Immense amounts of time, he said in his paper. So that's what 
he had to present eventually. He didn't write Origin of Species until de- decades later. 30 years, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't publish that until a lot later. But ideas of biological diversity were not unique to Darwin. People were going out and exploring at this time. Other cultures had done this before Darwin. And he had co-authored with several other folks who had co- had similar ideas that Alfred he did. Alfred Russell Wallace was the main one, yeah. And he yeah. doesn't get the credit that Darwin does, but neither do people from those other cultures that already had these ideas. Right. He I, was in the British Empire. Right. And the, the other thing we remember, I remember from the anthropology class we took was we talk a lot about Gregor Mendel, too. because yeah, he explained it. And he was a monk, too. He was a monk who was growing beans. And he had green beans and he had yellow beans. And the theory at the time was if you mix, if you crossbreed a green bean and a yellow bean, you're going to get a yellowish green bean. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but tr- a blending tr- of characteristics. Right. But truth be told, no, it didn't turn out that way at all. And then mm-hmm. basically the Mendelian model, what's the word? It's the... Um, Mendelian genetics? Mendelian genetics, yeah. And mm-hmm. the whole, the table. Uh, yeah, that you, the Punit square. The Punit square. <laughs> Thank you. Because you can tell it's been a while since I've been in a science class. Uh, But that is the basis for pretty much all genetics that we have today, right? Or at least as far as recessive traits are. uh, Yeah, so Mendel came up with how to explain evolution. Darwin came up with the theory... And um, he came up with how how it happened as in, as in organisms did evolve, but he didn't know how they evolved. Mendel told us how they evolved based on genes. Right. And he did that with his pea plants. He had characteristics like yellow and green. Oh, peas, and, not beans, of course. And, <laughs> and wrinkly pea pods and tall pea stems and all these different characteristics he measured from generation to generation. And he found out probabilities. But that's not how all evolution works today. We can do that with certain things about humans, but take your eye color, for example, or your hair color, how tall you are. That is not something that can be predicted mathematically. That is a um, polytypic trait. That means it's influenced by many different genes, and you won't get the same result every time. And we only know that because of the genome project, basically. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to figure out what um, types would be passed on to the next generation. Yeah. Uh, But even then, I mean, if you have your mother with um, a certain height and your father with a certain height, we still couldn't tell you exactly how tall you would be. Uh, skin color is another one. Um, what color your skin is, it's not predictive based on your mother and father. You'll have different skin colors in the next generation. You'll have different hair types. You'll have different eye color. You'll have different height, feet lengths, arm lengths. Or a complete lack of pigment, like my uh, great uncle. <laughs> He's, He's albino. albino. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, he had four albino siblings. And uh, there's a, a probability that my wife and I, if we ever had another child, would also have a child with albinism because it's mm-hmm. it's passed on genetically. But hmm. um, Yeah. So those are the two types of inheritance. You have Mendelian traits and polytypic traits. Mendelian, you can measure specifically. Polytypic, you can't. This is all so validating, but yet I think it's important for us to talk about uh, the skepticism behind evolution um, and and the, the impact it's had on our culture. You know, uh, when I was starting off my theater act, theatrical studies, I was in a, a play called Inherit the Wind, and Inherit the Wind is uh, Robert Lee's not Robert E. Lee, but Robert Lee's uh, interpretation of the Scopes Monkey Trial from the 1920s. Which was, of course, famous. It was the. It was actually a mock trial, but it ended up being a legitimate conviction of a guy who was teaching evolution in schools in um, in the South, and it ended up being this huge social debate over what do we want to believe. And I I see that debate coming up again recently within the past ten years. You know, of, of do we teach evolution or do we teach intelligent design in schools? And I mean, Eric and I are, are pretty much in agreement here. The two are not mutually exclusive concepts um, at all, but. I would love to hear your take on the skepticism behind the yeah, theory. Uh, sure. Um, so um, when you bring up uh, intelligent design versus evolution, and this is something I talk about in another class of mine. It's called magic, science, and religion. And uh, evolution uh, is a scientific theory. And so physical anthropology is taught as, as a science because it uses scientific principles. Um, and so you don't have to believe in evolution. You don't have to believe in gravity. You don't have to believe in anything else, you know, science says. Um, but it is an academic topic, and so that's why it's taught, a uh, scientific topic. Um, intelligent design is, um, it's, it's hard to describe it as a theory because a theory, um, like we said before, it's, uh, it, it has to have, first of all, a hypothesis, and then it has to have a series of tests that you perform on it. And then it has to have the ability for other people to come in and perform tests on it. I, ID or intelligent design can't really be tested, so it, it's hard to place it in, in a science. 
um, of course, you can still be taught, just like anything can still be taught. Uh, worldviews to people in different cultures are very important. We all have our own worldviews, our own way that we see the world and how we explain it. And so those are important to understand. That's why cultural anthropology is so important, because uh, what a people believe and how they structure their lives around it is very important when we're doing intercultural relations or we're trying to figure out more about ourselves. So, yeah, I, I think ID and intelligent design is valid, just like uh, a worldview, um, anything else is valid. It's just that to compare the two, it's, it's, it's harder because it's yeah. not quite the same. But uh, like I said, both are valid. Both are valid ways of trying to explain the world. We as humans need to explain our world. We have to know what's going on. I always think of religion as the pursuit of truth. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the desire to understand the universe around you and what it really is and what it means to you. Whereas science is, is the tool by which to find that truth. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. they, they exist for a lot of people on two opposite ends of a spectrum. But a spectrum is what they are on. They can meet in the middle. There is a place for that. Um, religion and science are both ways of explaining the world, but sometimes they do explain the same thing, just yeah. in different ways. And the one thing I want to call attention to, too, is that um, arguably one of the most conservative organizations on earth the catholic church mm-hmm. which i subscribe to uh mm-hmm. sounds like i get a magazine from them <laughs> I just realized. okay as, as a catholic i would say it's really important that the rest of the world understands that even conservative organizations like the church are adapting their, yeah. <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for lack of a better word. for lack of a better word <laughs> The Vatican is authorizing experiments in science that most other organizations can't do. Like, I mm-hmm. think, was it the one of the best telescopes in the world um, is at Castel Gandolfo? Well, or, I don't know if it's one of the... It certainly, at its time, was one of the best telescopes in the world. Yeah. But it still continues yeah. to be a, a center of science and, and astronomy. Yeah. Uh, right. Unparalleled anywhere else in the world. And, I mean, it really is light years ahead of some other places. Sure. Uh, and that certain things like... There are anthropologists, uh, I mean, at Santa Clara University, you know, who are... Jesuit priests, and that I love to mention that Charles Lamatla, the guy who developed the uh, the theory behind the Big Bang theory, was a Catholic monk. You yeah. know, to show that yes, these big breakthrough theories we based a lot of our modern yeah. understanding of the universe on. You know, they came from people who didn't see that there was one side or the other. You know, they could live side yeah, by side. I, I think where um, there's a, a big um, issue is when science and religion are trying to say that the one or the other is not valid. It's not a valid way of looking at something. Okay, so cultural institutions by their very nature are going to be traditional, whether it's religion or whether it's anything else, because once you change something, then you have to change the way that you do things. And if you think about it, especially as you get older, this is it's harder and harder to do. Try and break a habit that you've done for so long. Um, try and break a, a tradition that you have. And so if something comes in that seems threatening and seems to change the way that you do something, and I'm talking about both science and religion, and it's a threat and it's hard. And if you take it as a threat, hold it at arm's length and try not to understand it, then it will remain a threat. But, uh, and this goes for scientists as well as people um, on you know the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm not talking just about Catholics because this is a problem with people who are spiritual, with people who are of different religions too, is that if you see something that is threatening, you won't reach out to it. You'll just say, this is, this is wrong, this should be kept away, this is not good. But if that conversation starts and you really try and understand what science is or what this belief system is, then it's better and you can create a harmonious relationship there. You can make it mesh. You just have to try and really understand the other position, whatever that other position is. Yeah. Brian and I, uh, we were talking earlier and we were talking about two concepts that are held that are very close to religion, but can also be very much explained by evolution. And uh, one is a sense of morality, and two is monogamy in relationships. Which, to think about, like, right away, that that statement, I think a lot of people would be like, well, morality is philosophical and religious in nature. What are you talking about? So, enlighten us, please. Yeah, so, you know, when we, when we started grouping together, and we started staying together, and we started to protect one another, we realized that we had something going. We had a community. And this community was stronger with more people in it than it was with less people in it. And therefore, arbitrarily killing somebody in that community was considered to be bad. You it was not repercussions for ex- it. Exactly. It was not a good idea. You were not nearly as strong now. You were 
your your breeding stock, for lack of a better word, was now depleting. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And so many could argue that our sense of morality was born out of this need and desire to be able to survive, to continue on and, and continue to adapt. Monogamy is also considered to be kind of grouped into this as well. A monogamous relationship between two breeding individuals helps the child that is born to survive and have a better chance of, of continuing, particularly human children, because human children are born as infants very, very defenseless. They can't take care of themselves at all. And so if you have a stronger parenting bond, the chances of that child surviving is considerably higher. So pairing off monogamy, in a sense, could very well be explained as part of the theory of evolution. Now, re many religions around the world, however, want to take credit and claim this as well and say that this is ours, that it was a sense, it was, you know, spoken from God that we should be good to each other, we should not kill each other, that we should stay, you know, truthful to each other in, in a relationship. And I almost find that with evolution, it's a little more humbling to me because it says that we were all came to the same idea, the same conclusion, the same way. Mm -hmm. hmm. Not one belief system has to be right over the other. We can all yeah. be confident in that we were all came to the same idea and same conclusion yeah. mm -hmm. the same way. And you could even also argue from the opposite perspective, too, that those ideas definitely rooted in evolution. But whatever you believe in, God, Allah, Yahweh, the universe was speaking through evolution, you know, and teaching that through circumstance. Well, we are parts nature and nurture. <laughs> right. So we are determined by our genes and also by our culture. Interesting fact, though, is that when anthropologists go across the world is that they've never found a culture anywhere in the world that does not have religion. Uh, religion provides a basis of morals and values, and it, it creates this sense of um, what you're supposed to do, a correct way to act and behave. But religion itself is a term that's been created by Western society. Uh, religion is a word like work and politics and um, other things of that nature. If you go to a traditional community somewhere in the world and you say, what is your religion? A lot of times they won't have an answer for that. For the ancient Egyptians, they didn't really have this separation of religion. It's just, it was the way they saw the world. Yeah, it is what it was. It is what it was, yeah. You probably don't get the word religion coming up until you see trade or interaction with cultures that have different... That have differences, release. yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe do the Middle East being there are three religions that are all based out of one area that seems to be yeah. a, a place where it could come up quite a, quite a bit yeah. yeah so yeah when you get different peoples having different belief systems then you have to define what religion is and what these differences are it's true but religion provides that moral code that basis um, we can really substitute the word religion with belief system or worldview I mean how do you how does your culture say to see the world how does your culture say to act in your world? And that goes back to what you were saying, Eric, about evolution and how we have evolved in social groups. You look at a, a troop of chimpanzees, or you just take a pack of dogs and see how they behave. There are certain things those dogs will and will not do. Same with the chimpanzees, and yeah. it's because they're in a social group. And we're all inherently similar to one another, therefore we all mm -hmm. use the same source material. You know, if you go back in time, we're all banging the stones the same way, right? Yep. That's what I love to say. It's one of my favorite sayings. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been very enlightening. It, good refresher from a lot of the things we went over in my anthropology class from years ago. Eric, this is probably a trip to the theme park for you. <laughs> <laughs> I just love to listen and hear Kathy talk. It just makes me happy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, you're certainly welcome back on our show at any time. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And with that, please, if you would like to hear more of our stuff, please head to our website at neuronomy.com where you can find all the ways of contacting us and see all of our previous episodes. Eric, I think you need to give us a quick reminder before we, we wrap up, don't we? Yeah, we have a special Nerdonomy field trip, our very first one. Uh, that'll be on February 3rd. That will be to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. So if you happen to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and you would like to join us, we'll be meeting there at 12 p.m. You can find all the details on our website and on our Facebook page. And feel free to RSVP either by Facebook or you can email us if you do not partake in the Facebook You'll even be able to meet Kathy Shavers as she will be joining <laughs> yes. us as well. <laughs> and and uh, worry not football fans. You will be back in plenty of time to get to the big game. So Absolutely. No they are not uh, exclusive by any means. You can do both. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if you want to wear your Niners gear because they are going to the Super Bowl, you are more welcome to do so. Uh, Kathy, is there anything you'd like to say? Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I've enjoyed it a lot, and um, I, I look forward to more awesome future episodes from you guys. It's been great. 
If you folks happen to also go to either Foothill College or Ohlone College and you are so inclined, yes. please do sign up for Kathy's classes. Oh, She's amazing yeah. and she will uh, she'll enlighten you just like she did this hour, every hour, every week. It's very humbling to see that we are being listened to by someone of academic credibility and, and, being, and being enjoyed by someone of academic credibility. Uh, we're just two guys who love talking about history and, um, and all the weird little connections we can make from there. And thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. And with that, guys, you have a wonderful week, and we will be talking to you soon. Adios.